I think it was in 1973 that J.I. Packer published his now famous work, Knowing God. Dr. Packer, as many of you may know, he's recently gone home to be with the Lord. But he has left behind a very valuable book. Uh, if you want to read it, we've got, I think, a few copies on the book nook, and I encourage you to pick it up. In, in writing this book, he confessed that he was convinced that, quote, ignorance of God, ignorance of both his ways and of communion with him, lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. It was his contention, it was Dr. Packer's contention, that one could know a great deal about God without much knowledge of God. And that one can know a great deal about godliness without much knowledge of God. He, he suggested that evidence of knowing God might be seen in those who have a great energy for God, great thoughts of God, great boldness for God, and great contentment in God. But what does it mean to, to know God? According to Dr. Packer, it means first and foremost that we are actually loved and known by God himself, and that in return we know him and love him. We know him as he speaks to us through the scriptures, and we speak to him in prayer as those who love and serve him. Knowing God. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about this morning from the book of Hosea. Only in the passage that we're considering together, we see something of the foil, the reverse. We see what it looks like for a people to be devoid of a knowledge of God. Even as God graciously invites his people to seek him and know him. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Hosea. We'll be studying chapters 4 and 5 today. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 752. Now, as you'll recall, Hosea, he is a prophet. He's been called by God in the latter half of the 8th century, uh, right in the run-up, really, to uh, when the northern kingdom of Israel will be overrun by Assyria in 722 B.C. During the course of Hosea's ministry, about that time frame, uh, the people of the northern kingdom of Israel are or shall we say, um, marked by prosperity and promiscuity. It's a great time of wealth for this nation, and yet it's the same time, there's a great time of pursuit of false gods in the surrounding nations. Israel's sin for pursuing these false gods has been called harlotry in this book of Hosea. And because of Israel's sin, Hosea proclaims a message of, of judgment that Israel will be exiled from their land. Hosea, as a prophet, is called to explain this message of coming judgment as well, hold out the hope of mercy to God's people. And Hosea, while he explains, he also actually is called to exemplify this, these truths as well. So Hosea, as we saw early on in the book, was called to marry Gomer, a woman who would turn out to be unfaithful to him. And she uh, portrayed something of the people of Israel and their unfaithfulness to God. And yet Hosea extended mercy to Gomer. He brought her back into his home. And that's a picture of what God would do with his people. He would redeem them and bring them back to himself. The trajectory of the Lord's relationship with his people, according to the book of Hosea, is that God will punish the northern kingdom for their faithlessness. He will send them into exile and in the latter days restore and redeem them through his Messiah. This is what we thought about, especially in the, the latter portion of uh, last week of chapter 3. And as we turn to chapters 4 and 5, we begin to hear the formal charges of faithlessness against the northern kingdom. As a, a prophet, or we could say as a covenant advocate or attorney, Hosea announces God's lawsuit against the northern kingdom. That's what we're looking at today, the case against the northern kingdom of Israel. It isn't pretty. Israel is indicted for a number of infidelities. We've got to be honest about what we see here in the text, and we've also got to be introspective. We've got to ask, am I prone to wander in any of the ways that the northern kingdom was prone to wander? As we hear this word from the Lord through Hosea, we should want God in His mercy to expose our sin, to lead us humbly to acknowledge our guilt, 
and to earnestly seek His face for grace and, and pardon. We're going to study these three chapters under three headings. I think you've got an outline there in your bulletin. You'll see it. God's indictment, point number one, Israel's infidelity, and God's invitation. God's indictment, He gives kind of the survey or the summary charges there in the first three verses of chapter 4. And then, beginning in chapter 4, verse 4, and stretching through almost to the end of chapter 5, uh, we hear these uh, infidelities of Israel kind of laid out in successive detail. A survey of Israel's covenant violations. And then the chapter closes, chapter 5 closes, with God extending an invitation for His people to acknowledge their guilt, to seek God's face. And so we have God's indictment, Israel's infidelity, and God's invitation. Let's turn then and consider our first point, God's indictment. And as we do, let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord Yahweh, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Now just, just pause there and, and think about this. Hosea is a prophet of God. These are his words, but Yahweh is speaking through him. Hosea is giving the inspired, the inerrant, the infallible word of God to, we see there, the, the children of Israel, the northern kingdom. But consider... That if God spoke to you, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, He spoke to you and said, I have a controversy with you. How would you take that? Now, this word controversy actually means a kind of striving, as a contention, there's a charge, a complaint. God has a complaint, a charge against His people. God who knows all things, sees all things. He can't possibly be wrong. Israel must certainly be wrong. The sovereign Lord looking into the heart of the nation says, I have, a, I have a complaint against you. It's sobering to think. And then there's the complaint. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. No faithfulness. Right? Faithfulness is this this commitment, this covenant loyalty that the people of Israel are to have to God, but they've not been faithful to Him, have they? They've run out on Him and gone to other gods. They've been faithless, we could say. There's, there's no steadfast love. They haven't loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They haven't loved their neighbor as their self. They're lacking in love. And there's no knowledge of God. There's no real, meaningful, significant relationship with the Lord. That's what this idea of knowledge carries with it. This communion with the Lord. We, we walk with Him. We, we listen to Him. He speaks to us through His Word. And we, in return, speak to Him. And we share our hearts and our, our, our burdens with Him. There's no real meaningful relationship between God and His people. These are the survey of charges against Israel. Just pause and think about your own heart and life for a moment. Is there faithfulness there? Is there fickleness? Serve the Lord one moment, serve a God or idol, something else the next. Could we be marked by faithlessness? Are we sometimes marked by fickleness? Well, what about steadfast love? What are, we, what are we giving our love to? Does it flow fully to the Lord? Or do we give it away like Israel gave herself away to other gods? Do we know the Lord? Do we walk with Him? As we read His word each morning, are we... Learning facts, a list of facts. Are we learning about His covenant faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ? Our, our lives are sometimes marked by fickleness. They're sometimes lacking in love. And sometimes our, our knowledge of God is not entirely complete. And so we, we have to rest and run to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? 
Because he was always faithful to the Lord God. At every turn, he kept God's law. And that's because he loved his father. He knew him completely. He knew him from all eternity. We must rest under the Lord Jesus Christ. Put our hope in him. Have communion with the Lord Jesus. So there's this lack in Israel, right? This is the charge. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God. That's what's absent. But do you see what's also present in the land, right? Verse 2, there's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. These would be things that we expect in the pagan nations surrounding Israel. But these would not be things we should expect among Israel. These are, are violations of the second table of the law, really. right? If, uh, if verse 1 is articulating how we ought to love God, perhaps a summary of the first table of the law, love the Lord our God with all our heart, then these violations here in verse 2 are perhaps a summary of the second table of the law. This is... What's found among Israel, among God's people. Staggering to think that that this, these explicit violations are found among God's people. And the sovereign creator, he, he sees this among his people. And we can't be surprised, right? Because if there is no faithfulness, if there's no steadfast love and no knowledge, then isn't this the natural fruit that we would expect? But notice this desperate situation for the people of Israel. Notice in verse 3 what we see there. The land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. This is what sin does. Sin, is its effects are comprehensive, right? It uh, tarnishes everything, taints everything, it trashes everything. I mean, just, just think about this. Everybody living in the land, the beasts walking on top of the land, the birds of the heavens flying above the land, and the fish swimming below the land are all affected by sin in its presence. This is what we were told. In the very beginning of the Bible, when Adam sinned, sin's curse would have a profound effect upon all creation, and creation groans. And at this point in the the biblical storyline, right, we're waiting for the Messiah who's going to come and who's going to lift the darkness and the mourning and the languishing. And, And we know all of these things to be true in our experience of this world, don't we? I mean, perhaps you read these verses and you think to yourself, I... I see swearing and lying and murder. I see stealing and committing adultery and breaking all bounds. Could it be that that's because there is no faithfulness to God, no steadfast love to God, no knowledge of God in the land? We see these things and we we ought to grieve. And we, we ought to ask ourselves... It is God or the things of God, the, the gravitational center of our lives, the things which everything revolves around? Or are the things of God, is God kind of shoehorned in? Right? Is God kind of made to fit around our priorities and around our lives? Are we wrapping our lives around God? Faith and love and knowledge are, are absent. We should weep and we should pray. When we see these things in our world via news flashes and whatnot, what is our first response? Shouldn't our our first response be to, to mourn and to pray? To pray. For God to be at work in the world, to bring knowledge of His Son, to bring love for Christ, to bring faithfulness, First in our own hearts. And then as we work to bring that to others. You know, Paul tells us in Romans 10, 17 that faith comes by hearing the word of God proclaimed. Giving ourselves to making the word of God known is giving ourselves to cultivating faith, growing love, and 
furthering the experiential knowledge of God. If you're concerned about our world, give yourself to casting the seed of God's word liberally among your family, neighbors, and friends, and co-workers. God's indictment here, this is kind of his summary indictment. God's indictment here reveals that the convictions of Israel's covenant commitment have departed. And that's because Israel's heart has departed from God. They lack faith, love, and knowledge. Israel is empty of all true religion, but she's full of false religion. And as we turn to our our second point, Israel's infidelities, Hosea, he's going to, to catalog in more detail the ways in which Israel's full of false religion. We're going to study Hosea chapter 4, verse 4 through chapter 5, verse 14 in bite-sized bits. And I know that I've given you a, a nice, neat outline there in the, um, in the bulletin for this uh, section. We're going to look at it in those sections, but uh, we might depart from that outline from time to time. Just fair warning. Let's begin with verses 4 through 9 of Hosea chapter 4. Hear this word of the Lord. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being priests to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your Lord, I will also forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They're greedy for iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Now there are a, a number of charges in here. Let me just give a headline for, for one. A headline, a a charge here is that Israel lacks knowledge. Picking up really on verse 2, right? Hosea gave that headline that Israel has no knowledge. Well, here in verses 4 to 9 of chapter 4, we have something of an extended meditation on that charge. Yahweh, he renews his contention, his controversy or charge. Yahweh mentions priest, prophet, and people in these verses. Yahweh's upset with the lack of knowledge among his people from top to bottom. From the religious leaders, from priest and prophet, down to the common Israelite. God's word is a lamp to his people's feet and a light to their path. But do you notice what they're doing, how they're walking? They're, they're actually stumbling. They're stumbling all over the place. And it doesn't matter if it's day or if it's night. Having departed from God's word, having forgotten God's law, as verse 6 says, which gives knowledge, they are disoriented and will be destroyed. They're destabilized. This is why God's people face discipline, because they do not know him. They have rejected him, and they'll face rejection too. Consider just reflecting on this, having forsaken God's word and the stumbling mentioned. Consider how stabilizing God's word is. Knowing God and knowing God's law keeps you from stumbling, from sin, from shame. The world, the sinful flesh, and the devil are always working to invert order, to destabilize. And if you want to be able to correctly identify injustice and sin, to keep your balance in this world, you're going to have to know God's word and his law. It's like a level used in construction. It'll tell you if the house is slanted or if the floor is flat. Your Bible reading is perhaps more important than you realize. It has a stabilizing effect in your life. Sets the table, the floor for you as you walk in this world. Now, take a look at what Hosea says in verses 10 to 14. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore 
and your brides committed adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they played the whore, nor your brides when they committed adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. So here's another headline, another charge. There are several here in this passage, but just take one. Here's a charge that Israel has forsaken the Lord. It's through that metaphor of adultery, spiritual adultery and physical adultery. Hosea, he's you know, clearly continuing to work on that charge of lack of knowledge. He points that out. Israel's sin is pursuing, it's taking away understanding. You see verse 11. And there are people without understanding, verse 14. So there's that, that knowledge charge that's still emerging. But he adds to the lack of knowledge the charge of departure from God. You see that in verse 10, they have forsaken the Lord. In the end of verse 12, they have left their God. And in these verses, we have a description of Israel as a people who cannot be satisfied even though they cherish, they completely embrace, they give themselves over to these Canaanite deities. They, they feast and they seek the lusts of the flesh at all of the worship sites of the pagan nations. You see there, verse 13, is, he's just rattling off all of these places they go to, the tops of the mountains. They burn offerings on the, the hills, under the oak, the poplar, and the terror, but they go to every pagan worship site. And just consider the folly of following false religion. God's people are asking a wooden pole. They're asking their walking stick for wisdom in verse 12. If you saw a person bowing down before a telephone pole with a nice carving, you would think he's mad. If you saw a person stop and ask his walking stick for directions, which he has been wielding himself and walking with, having control and mastery over, you saw him asking for directions from that stick, you'd have a few serious questions. For that person, I think. And this is strange, right? Because they're seeking out direction, seeking a word from these places. When they have a God who speaks. He's a God who spoke in creation. He's a God who thundered to them in his voice at Mount Sinai. And they said, Moses, speak to us. We're, We're afraid to hear. They have a God who speaks to them through prophets. Hosea is speaking to them now. And yet they refuse. They're, they're looking for a word, but they, they have a word. They have a word from the Lord. They have forsaken the God who speaks. And we have a God who speaks, don't we? we? We have his word, don't we? But do we forsake it? Do we look here for direction? Or do we look elsewhere? There's something else to notice here too. Israel has forsaken the Lord. They've committed spiritual adultery but at some point, that spiritual adultery, did you notice it? It crosses the line and becomes physical adultery. Or perhaps it might be more accurate to say that spiritual adultery and physical adultery are merged together. Sadly, it's so often the case that where there is physical adultery, spiritual adultery has already transpired. You want to know why you struggle with sexual sin? It's because your heart has loved lust more than the Lord. You've committed spiritual adultery before you've committed physical adultery. And just as Yahweh promised in verse 9, so he promises in verse 14 that this infidelity, it leads to ruin. And the next set of verses will end the same way. They will end in shame. All all of this, all these infidelities will lead to judgment. Take a look at Hosea chapter 4 verses 15 to 19. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave them alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So a headline, one charge here is that Israel is a danger to Judah. Another charge is that Israel is stubborn. That Ephraim is idolatrous. We just look at these phrases there. Verse 15, uh, let not Judah become guilty. This Northern kingdom has plunged headlong into wickedness, 
But that does not mean that they should encourage Judah to join them. The prophet's saying, don't, don't cause the southern kingdom to stumble and drown. Don't invite others into your sin. Don't bring Judah down in your faithlessness, your stubbornness. And the northern kingdom, it's a striking analogy, isn't it? The northern kingdom is like a stubborn cow. They're, they're standing immoved. They're immovable in their idolatry. They're, they're standing in their sin. Have you ever seen someone try to uh, move a cow with a, a rope that doesn't want to move? That cow, that cow's not going to move. But Israel, they keep filling themselves with false worship. And the Lord God is going to cover them with shame. That's the thrust of verses 16 to 19. Maybe there are a few lessons for us here. Are we ever stubborn in our sin? Have you ever sinned and thought, well, I can't admit that I'm wrong now. That would be embarrassing. And we only stay stuck and really, actually, stay enslaved. There's joy and freedom in repentance. Stubbornness only keeps you enslaved. Right? God, he, with His gracious rope, He pulls us through His Word and through His Holy Spirit and He's convicting us. And the best thing for us to do is to pick up our feet and to follow His lead. Don't dig in. God knows what He's doing when He's pulling. He's loving us in His gentle and gracious pulls. He knows where He's leading us. Now, there may even be a, a different kind of a warning or encouragement to us in these verses too. Judah was indirectly warned to stay away from the northern kingdom and her idolatry. And perhaps we should be careful about the company we keep. Right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, Paul said, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts or ruins good morals. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 14, speaking of the Pharisees, Jesus said, Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Who we follow, who we're with, our relationships, they, they matter. Who we spend time with and what we spend our time on matters. The content we take in matters. And there may be people and places that we should avoid in this world. So far, and this is just so far, Hosea has identified Israel's infidelities as consisting of setting aside God's law, harlotry, drunkenness, divination, and idolatry. Some of the Lord's contentions are that Israel lacks knowledge, has forsaken the Lord, and are their spiritual danger to Judah. As chapter 5 opens, Hosea once again explicitly addresses the leadership of Israel. Take a look at verses 1 to 7 of chapter 5. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. You have been a snare at mitzvah. And a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter. But I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. He is withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them within, with their fields. So here's a, a, another headline, another charge we see in these verses. One, certainly that Israel is deserving of discipline, for they have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. You see that in verse Seven. Israel's dealt faithlessly. See how Hosea is bringing up his initial summary and survey charges as he works his way through his message. Well, in verse 1 of chapter 5, you notice that Hosea, he addresses priest, house, and king. Once again, he's addressing Israel from top to bottom, from ruler and mediator to menial resident. He's addressing the many and the ones in leadership. Hosea even addresses sins that he's already mentioned. The priests, the king, and the people of Israel as a whole are once again chastised for being a danger. We're even told of a few places which Israel has positively been a snare and trap to others at Mitzvah and Tabor. Um, Hosea, 
uh, likely has uh, idolatry in view at some of these places, perhaps a misplaced trust in a, a fortress there. But then you see uh, that Israel is also there in verse 2. They, they are encouraging others to sin, and these have only gone further up and in to sin. Israel is called out once again for stubbornness, for spiritual infidelity, for lack of knowledge. In verse 4, we're told flatly that they know not the Lord. We're told that Israel is marked by pride in verse 5. That's just another way of saying that Israel is that stubborn cow not moving. And that they stumble. That was mentioned, remember, in chapter 4, verse 5. Spiritual adultery and lack of knowledge reemerge in the same verse. All of the repetition, all this repetition makes you wonder, Hosea, you've said all of this before. Why are you saying it again? Well, not only is it characteristic of the prophetic genre to repeat and to go over some of the same material, but the truth is, is that sometimes repetition is necessary to get the point across. It's part of what makes a text like Hosea memorable, or should have been memorable, for the ancient people of God. Perhaps we could add, or, add another reason to why Hosea repeats himself, and that's because Israel repeatedly sins. Simply illustrating that Israel really is faithless, really is deserving of this judgment. There are two striking realities that we kind of passed over there in verses 2 and 3. I think we just need to take a moment to meditate upon them. You see that first phrase there at the end of verse 2? I will discipline all of them. All of them. No one escapes the discipline of the Lord. But then there... This discipline, this comprehensive discipline is joined really to God's sovereign sight, right? In verse 3, Yahweh reminds Israel that he sees what they're doing. They can't hide anything from him. I can't see God, but he can see me and see everything. And he can see, he can see my heart, can't he? But he says uh, there in verse 3, it's not hidden from them. And, and in verse 4, the spirit of whoredom is within them. See, God sees our hearts. He, he knows us. He made us. Made everything about us. He knit us together in, his, in our mother's womb. He knows every bone. He carved it. He knows what's running around in our hearts. He sees sovereignly. And... He disciplines those who've sinned. No sin escapes the notice of the sovereign God. And because he's holy, just, and good, no sin will escape his punishment either. Like Israel, we need a rescue from God's divine wrath. I mean, just stop thinking about Israel for a moment. Think about your own heart and life, what this means for your own life. That God sees every sin, that nothing's hidden from him. He knows you more intimately than you know yourself. He made every nook and cranny of your heart. He even knows what we will say before we say it, right? Remember what the psalmist says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Psalm 139, verse 4. He knows us. Do we know him? If this means anything, right, it means that we need a rescue from the discipline and wrath of the all-sovereign and all-seeing God. Like Israel, like our first parents, like Adam and Eve, we too have sinned. We deserve to be exiled from God's loving presence. Just like Adam was exiled, and like Israel is going to be exiled. We need a perfect king to save us and a perfect priest to mediate for us and offer a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the just demands of God's wrath against our sin. Now these verses, verses 6 and 7, teach us that a perfect priest, a perfect king, can't be found in the Israel of Hosea's day. The Lord Jesus had not yet come at this point in history. In Hosea's day, they had to look forward in hope. The fullness of time had not yet come, as Paul said in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. The Lord had more history to work out to prepare His people and His world for the coming of His Son. And soberly, we're told in verses 6 and 7 that even if they did seek the Lord, 
they wouldn't find the Lord. Remember, because the people had withdrawn from the Lord, the Lord promised to withdraw from them. And the withdrawal here is likely referring, it's likely an allusion to the coming exile in 722 B.C. for the northern kingdom. We're even told that Judah will stumble as well. Judah will stumble into exile a little later in 586 B.C. In fact, this portion of Hosea's prophecy, it culminates in addressing Israel and Judah in verses 8 to 14. A new infidelity is mentioned here. God's people have gone after false gods, yes, but now we're told that they trusted in the horses and chariots of other nations as well. They should have trusted in the name of the Lord our God. Read Hosea chapter 5, verses 8 to 14 now. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmarks. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I'm like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and none shall rescue. Here's a a headline from this section. God's charges that Israel has misplaced their trust. I probably should have done this a little bit earlier, but there are several names and places mentioned here. Right? We've got the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. But we also have Ephraim and Benjamin. Uh, Ephraim was a larger tribe in the northern kingdom, so they're often just associated with the northern kingdom. And sometimes Hosea and other prophets will speak of the northern kingdom just by the name Ephraim. Uh, something similar is happening with Benjamin and Judah. Uh, Benjamin was closely uh, related to Judah. They're often together uh, considered part of the the southern kingdom. So there are various things happening here. These verses begin with a horn and alarm. The horn and alarm, they're, they're common calls to arms. We've got conflict really that's emerging in these verses. Hosea uh, also uh, perhaps brings these this horn, the alarm to mind, because a horn and alarm can also be a, a warning. Uh, perhaps uh, that's a, a concern here as well. But, but an army is poetically depicted as following Benjamin into battle, right? We follow you, O Benjamin, there in verse 8. And yet Ephraim and Israel are promised desolation and defeat there in verse 9. Judah, with Benjamin, is, is being depicted as invading Israel. That's actually the trajectory of, of the towns, perhaps, they're, they're invading Israel. Judah is preying upon Israel in a moment of weakness. And the leaders of Judah, they're charged with being deceitful and stealing property. That's what moving the landmark refers to. Yahweh, we learn, will judge Judah for this. He'll also judge Ephraim. Hosea says there at the end of verse 11 that Ephraim was determined to go after filth. Now, why would he say this about Ephraim? How is it that they're going after Well, look there in verse 13. It tells us Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. In other words, Ephraim and the northern kingdom went and asked the king of Assyria for protection as they were facing this threat. They would subject themselves to the king of Assyria. They'd pay tribute to him. So they'd get his horses and chariots to protect them. What's wrong with this? Well, Israel's trust is misplaced, isn't it? But perhaps we think, right, isn't this how international relations works, right? Uh, You're a vulnerable nation. You ask for help from a larger nation. Isn't this just how international relations work? Why call this going after filth? What's wrong with asking a great king to provide protection for your floundering nation? Well, here's the problem. Israel already has a great king. His name's Yahweh, and they're to look to him for protection. And and by going to the great king of Assyria, they're implicitly telling the surrounding worlds that actually our great king is not quite as great as the king of Assyria. He's actually a, a, a greater king. 
They're bringing shame upon the name of Yahweh, their great king. They're belittling him, bringing him down, treating him as common and even less. But look closely at Yahweh's evaluation of this situation. They've gone after these horses and chariots of other nations. But look at verse 13, the words especially that concludes verse 13. But he, this great king, he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. Turns out that this great king of Assyria is not so great. He can't cure you or heal you. He can't even protect you from the lion that is the Lord. Do you see how the Lord personifies himself as a lion there in verse 14? And how he promises to personally punish and tear and carry off Ephraim and Judah? No one can rescue Ephraim or Judah from the mouth of the Lord, not even the great king of Assyria. Christian, there's a, there's a word here for us. Today, or recently, or even very soon, we will be called to trust in the horses and chariots of this world. A political candidate, perhaps. Perhaps trusting in a candidate's list of nominees to the high court. Remember this, we do not trust in the horses and chariots of this world. We do not believe that they are our ultimate protection or our ultimate promotion. No, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We must remember that they are not able to cure us or heal us. That is the work of only one lawgiver and judge. That's the ministry of only one king, our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that your allegiance lies with the Lord. Israel, they had a mighty problem of weakness while surrounded by powerful nations. But their mightiest problem lay in their relationship with the Lord God. He's coming after them like a lion. They might have thought that Judah and the other nations in the region were their greatest problem. But the greatest problem is the Lord himself. He is the spurned and jealous lover. He's been abandoned by a faithless people. He's been run out on by a loveless bride. He's been forgotten when he should have been known and called upon as protection. All of Israel's infidelities have led to this, the certainty of the Lord's lion-like discipline. But these dark and difficult words are not the last words. The last word in this portion of Scripture contains an invitation. Surprisingly, when Israel has so mistreated the Lord, having thought about God's indictment and Israel's infidelities, let's turn to think briefly about this third and final point, God's invitation. Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, God's invitation. I will return again to my place this is the Lord God speaking, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. What an amazing invitation from the Lord God who's been so mistreated, so rejected by his people. We've already learned from the book of Hosea that God would send his people into exile. God would withdraw with them. Because they have withdrawn from him. God tells us that he would, in a sense, make himself distance. He would return again to his place. He would make himself seemingly absent. But God's apparent absence does not mean he has abandoned his promises or his purposes. And there's a purpose here, isn't there? We must constantly keep in view the fact that according to Hosea chapter 3, verse 5, that one day the children of Israel will return. They'll seek the Lord their God. God will send his Messiah and God will have peace with his people in the latter days. One of God's purposes here in this withdrawal is to provide space for the people of Israel to come to their senses, to acknowledge their guilt, and to seek God's face. God's purpose in the exile is to allow the distress of his people to actually rise. God might actually sometimes allow the distress of his people to rise so that they might earnestly seek him. As Hebrews 12 reminds us, God disciplines the son whom he loves so that his people might share in his holiness. God is telling us here that he's, he's leaving room in a sense for repentance. And, and that means he's inviting his people to repent. He's inviting them to acknowledge their guilt. This is a gracious invitation from God. And this really ought to be our response to Hosea 4 and 5. If we have heard the word of the Lord through Hosea in Hosea chapters 
4 and 5. And, and by that I mean if we've heard God's message, not merely to Israel, but to us, that far too often we're marked by infidelity to God, faithlessness, a, a lack of love to Him, and knowledge that's leaking away. If we're marked by these things, then our appropriate response is, is right here in these three phrases. Acknowledge their guilt, seek my face, and earnestly seek me. There's some overlap in these phrases to be sure, especially with respect to the latter two phrases. But let's just meditate them on them for a moment. We must acknowledge our guilt. How about that for a heavy ask? Right? Israel must acknowledge that it is their sin that's severed their relationship with God. And we must do the same. You've heard apologies, right, in, in this world. I'm so sorry that your feelings were hurt. It's not acknowledging your guilt, your wrong, in that kind of apology. It may be good and right to, to feel sorrowful, but that's not an acknowledgement of guilt, is it? God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is innocent. We are guilty. We feel guilty when we sin because we're actually guilty. Sin is the failure to keep God's law. It's transgressing God's law. It's personal rejection of God. And deciding that we'll live our own way rather than God's way. And acknowledging our guilt means that we confess to God that we have sinned against Him. Think of David in Psalm 51 verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. The scriptures teach that there's a thing called worldly grief and godly grief. Right? There's worldly acknowledgement of guilt. Worldly grief or worldly acknowledgement of guilt. It laments the loss of goods, of status, of reputation, of comfort. Godly grief, godly acknowledgement of guilt laments the offense against God. Violating His law. Bringing shame upon His name. Godly grief and acknowledgement of guilt takes responsibility for dragging God's name through the mud. And true acknowledgement of guilt is more concerned about God's reputation and name than our own. True acknowledgement of guilt is also seen in repentance in turning away from sin and turning to God. And that's what we see actually here as well, right? We seek God's face. And seeking God's face in the scriptures or God's face often implies favor and blessing. But how, how can God look favorably upon us? How can his face shine upon us if we have sinned against him? What is implied here in Hosea and understood really throughout the whole Old Testament is that uh, seeking God's face is seeking God for forgiveness. That people of Israel would come to God. They would come to him. And seek his forgiveness at the, the tabernacle or temple. They would bring with them a lamb or an animal. They'd often lay their hands upon his head symbolically showing that this animal is receiving my sin. And then the animal would be sacrificed. Their blood would be shed. Their life would be taken. They would bear the wages of sin for that person who's offered the sacrifice. God says without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sins. And so this is how the people of Israel would seek God's face. They'd seek His forgiveness by trusting not only in the sacrifice they offered, but in the sacrifice that would come in the Lord Jesus Christ, who would take upon Himself the sin and guilt of the world. That's how forgiveness was sought in the Old Covenant, through that sacrificial system. And we seek forgiveness today through the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that He's offered for us. The justice that's been satisfied in Him and His death on the cross. We seek God's face as we seek God's forgiveness. And we believe that Jesus' blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We seek God's face. We seek God's forgiveness as we believe that on the cross Jesus was paid the wages for our sin. We seek God's face and God's forgiveness as we believe that Jesus was raised from the grave on the third day. For the forgiveness of our sins. And we must sincerely believe this. That's why the last qualification is actually so important there in verse 15. You see, part of the problem that the prophet Hosea had raised is that the people of Israel, they're faithless. They, they lack integrity. 
There's a gap between their um, supposed belief and actual behavior. They've been offering sacrifices to God, but they've also been offering sacrifices to all these other gods. And as I said, this is why this last qualification in verse 15 is so important. Israel and we must earnestly, which is to say eagerly, genuinely, authentically, sincerely, Seek the Lord. There's a a deliberateness there, a longing there, a hard searching implied in the seek, a desire to actually know God and in the fullness of His love and grace revealed in Jesus Christ. There's a seeking that is suffused with a desire for faithfulness to God, a seeking that's suffused with a desire to love God and a passion to know Him. All of that was absent in Israel. But it must be present in our seeking of the Lord. We must turn from our sins and trust in Him. And this is what I want us to conclude thinking about. God, He is not hopeless about His people's sin. He's actually, I think, hopeful. I I think there's a word of hope in in verse 15 of chapter 15. It's in that little word, until. Until. Do you see that there? That until implies that they will. God's people will acknowledge their guilt. Seek God's face. And in their distress, earnestly seek Him. God knows the time will come. Has the time come for you? Are you seeking to know Him? Are you seeking to love Him? Are you seeking to be faithful to him. Here's his invitation to you. Acknowledge your guilt, for Jesus was punished for your sin. Seek God's face, for his son secured forgiveness on the cross. Earnestly seek the Lord, and you will find him. That's God's invitation to you.